www.3cr.org.au. It's approximately four o'clock and um, just wanted to let listeners know that today is going to be a different show to what we usually have. Now, usually we have a lot of interviews and the cho- and the show is chock full of um, people from different minority groups coming in to speak about um, different topics. But today is going to be different in that we will be reading out um, articles in regards to some of the topics that we have looked at um, over the year. And of course, it'll be a very small cross-section of material because we've only got an hour. But sometimes it's good to actually have a look at um, literature reviews about what is covered on on our shows. Um, for example, um, one of the articles that I'm going to be reading today is going to be about 14-year-old um, Elijah, an Aboriginal boy um, who was who was killed. Um, and yes, yeah, so I will be looking at that. And then we're going to be doing some work on Dylan, Dylan Voller. Um, and I'll be reading out a short segment from 60 Minutes, where he was, which he was on that, that program. And we'll look at um, crossover to America as well and have a look at a couple of political prisoners over there. And Peter, um, and he'll introduce this later, has also has um, a segment um, that, that he's going to be talking about as well and with some audio to back that up. And, and of course, there'll be stay tuned for music. Um, throughout the show and other articles and I'll also be advertising an event that's happening tonight um, as well at Trades Hall. And it's approximately 4.04 and following on we're going to be, I'm going to be reading some material about um, Elijah and this particular incident which was quite horrible really, quite tragic, 1788 all over again. Um, is going to be coming from two publica- publications and the first bit that I'm going to read out is from Mini News, which is a Melbourne publication about workers' rights. Less than a year ago, on the 29th of August 2016, 14-year-old Elijah Doherty was stalked, run down and killed in a clearly race-based hate crime. The incident itself led to riots and massive protests in Kalgoorlie. Mark Donnelly was found not guilty of manslaughter and the killing of sorry was was found guilty of manslaughter. And basically um, the publication goes on to say, and it is true that there is going to be solidarity rallies all over Australia. And in fact, um, there's going to be a rally in Melbourne on Friday and I believe the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance are going to be hosting that rally, and that's at four o'clock. Not sure of the location, um, but we're going to have to get more details to you um, later on. But if you want to know more about the event, contact 3CR 94198377 or Google Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. This is a new event, I think, that's just been posted. We're going to be looking now at The Guardian. There's been a lot of coverage about um, this young Aboriginal boy. And, yeah, The, the Guardian has actually done a very, a, a very good job, actually, of providing coverage. The killing of Elijah, uh, Elijah 
oil patch at crime scene fades but stain remains and that's the heading. A man has been cleared of manslaughter over the 14-year-old's death as Indigenous children live on with the same burden of suspicion and racial tension. The patch of oil marking where the Nissan Navara came to rest, looking back across Gribble Creek Reserve towards Clancy Street and a tree that had been set up as a memorial to Elijah. And there's a, um, it describes a photo um, of, of, of him there. Basically, three days after Indigenous teenager Elijah was killed, another Aboriginal boy stands with his grandfather next to a pool of oil on a dirt track. You see that? His grandfather asks. Tell me what happened here. A kid got killed, replies the boy. He was about 12 years old and softly spoken, his eyes fixed on the red clay. That's right, his grandfather says. Sending his grandson away with a half hug, the man looks up. I don't know whether Elijah stole the motorbike, he says. But in this town, it's an important lesson. Elijah 14, who was found dead in bushland near Kagooli, Western Australia, in August 2016. The town is Kagooli, Boulder, about 60 kilometres east of Perth, a town known for its, its historic facade. Super pit gold mine, sex workers and the racial tensions that have always existed between Indigenous and non-Indigenous residents. The pool of oil is boxed in by white spray paint, left by the crash scene investigators. It marks the wheel positions of a two-tone ton white Nissan Navara ute, which came to rest there just before 9am on 29th August 2016. The trail of oil runs in a straight line down between two clear tyre tracks across the muddy ditch of Gribble Creek and back up a slight rise to another dirt track where a patch of darker clay marks the point where Elijah and the motorbike he was riding went tumbling underneath the 4WD. That track curves sharply left, running parallel with the creek. The 4WD did not instead striking out um, a a 45-degree angle with the track with enough force to gouge out the creek bed. An aerial map of the Gribble Creek Reserve in Western Australia where Elijah died. Supreme Court of Western Australia. Three days earlier, when police and paramedics arrived at the scene, driving over over crucial tyre tracks that may have showed what happened in the metres before the crash, they found evidence of its aftermath strung out in a neat line. The first bit of motorcycle was found four to five metres from the point of impact. It was in three main pieces, with smaller bits of wreckage covering the ground like discarded wrapping paper. Elijah lay... 9.5 9.5 metres from the motorcycle. When Constable de Jury Candic arrived just after 9am, a man was kneeling over the boy trying to administer CPR. It was no use. The impact had been no kinder to him than it had to the motorcycle. His spinal cord was severed at the base of his brain, killing him instantly. He was 14. 34 metres from where the man knelt with Elijah sat the Nissan Navara. The driver's door opened from where the man had got out and run back towards the victim. And, uh, yeah, just to let you know that these scenes are distressing and it may contain images. It it has contained images already um, in case someone finds this familiar. The only sign of damage were two black tyre marks on the front bumper and the punctured oil pan. The track showed no sign of heavy braking. It was all over in five seconds, he told police. I couldn't stop. I have gone over the top of him. Tell the world we want justice. 
Elijah's death exposes Kagouli's racial fault line. The next day, the man was charged with manslaughter and the town blew up. A protest outside the courthouse turned into a riot, with rocks thrown through windows and police cars damaged. The accused man was moved to a jail in Perth. His family fled interstate and the house they had lived in burned down. At the Supreme Court in Perth on Friday, the man was cleared of manslaughter but found guilty of dangerous driving causing death. He was sentenced to three years jail and will be eligible for parole, which, because he has already served 11 months, could be as early as January. His identity is still suppressed, a condition the court imposed for his own protection. He has spent the past 11 months in a protected area of an unnamed jail, separated from other prisoners. The jury, which was not all white but had no Indigenous members, reached the majority verdict after six and a half hours. Elijah was not the first Aboriginal boy in Kalgoorlie to be chased, motorcycle versus high-powered 4WD, by a white man who believed the bike to be stolen. Elijah's own two bikes bought off his grandfather were taken away by police weeks before the crash because they too believed they were stolen. They were returned after his death. If they hadn't have taken them, would he have been riding a stolen bike, Grandfather Albert said. Family and friends of the popular young footballer set up a memorial at the crash site and camped there for four weeks after his death until his funeral. Albert, the grandfather of Elijah, um, was outside the Supreme Court in Perth. Kids been always getting chased here, a woman at the campsite told Guardian Australia four days after Elijah's death. And the social media post on the now-deleted Kalgoorlie crimes whinge and whine. Recommended people resort to vigilante justice to get their property back, saying police were unable to stem the tide of thefts. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we certainly live in a very racist a racist society. We don't encourage calling the police anymore, a post in January 2015 said. We encourage our stronger members or members who have several males in the house to sort it out themselves. Asked if he had ever been chased, one of Elijah's friends who was visiting the memorial shrugged. We all have, he said. He'd been chased packs of times, the same way, but he had a slow motorbike on the morning he died. It wasn't that fast, and the gears stuffed up on him, and that man was right behind him. The motorcycle was a red 7033 Zijang, referred by the man who hit him as the little Chinese bike. It was one of two bikes stolen from the man's house in Boulder the night before. He told police in an interview recorded at the Kagouli police station seven hours after the crash that he was concerned about getting back the red Honda. 50 motorcycle that had been stolen at the same time and held sentimental value for his wife. His wife posted the theft on the Kalgoorlie Crimes Whinge and Wine page that night asking for information. The Honda 50 wasn't running. One of the police officers who attended his house um, about 8.30pm on Sunday 28th August recommended he look for it under the low-lying scrub at Gribble Creek Reserve saying it was a dumping ground for stolen bikes. That's what the man was looking for, he told police, when he rolled along a dirt track from North Trace to Clancy Street, saw the little red Chinese bike entering the reserve from Clancy Street and took off after it. He had called in sick to deal with the forensics crew who were due at his house that morning to dust the shipping container where the motorcycles were stored for prints. CTV, CCTV taken from security cameras on a house at the ends of Clancy Street shows the moment the 4WD took off after the motorcycle. 
Another camera has footage of a few seconds later showing the motorcycle travelling at an average speed of 46 kilometres, while the 4WB was travelling at 67 kilometres, gaining on the bike at a rate of 5.6 millimetres a second. Albert places a toy motorbike at the memorial for his grandson, Elijah. Why did you taste the bike Elijah was on if it was of no sentimental value? Detective Natalie Davis asked. The bikes went missing together, the man said. The person might know where the Honda 50 was. Davis told court that the Honda 50 was located later that day. It had been under scrub at the Gribble Creek Reserve, just as that police officer suggested. It is marked on a crash scene diagram drawn by Senior Constable Richard Buckman as being found about 20 metres away from the point where Elijah and the little red bike tumbled under the car. The man told police he never intended to hit the person on the motorcycle, that his adrenaline was pumping and that his guiding thought was, that must be my bike. He said he assumed the rider would continue on the track as it curved to the south, headed for the prison and never allowed for it to change course. He acknowledged he was really close to him and that in hindsight his driving was unsafe. Normal circumstances I would not be driving like that. But then again, normal circumstances I would, I would be not be trying to catch up with a motorbike that I know I think is mine and hoping that the rider would go into the bush and fall off, he said. I was not fishtailing, I was not out of control, but I was close to the motorbike in the car and when he veered into me I could not stop. I would say at that stage that wasn't safe. He said he had never thought that the turbo diesel Navara would outpower the motorbike, an argument state prosecutor David Davison dismissed. This bike was no mystery bike, Davison said. His boy or boys used it. He knew its capabilities. At the end of the police interview, his patience frayed. The man suggested detectives question the officer who told him to look at Gribble Creek Reserve in the first place. Tell him what was your intention in telling me to go down there and look for it, he said. I'm not blaming anyone. I just wanted my kid's motorbike. It was in a locked container in our yard with two dogs with it. I didn't steal the car I was in. I didn't do a criminal act, except now I am being charged with a criminal act. I am a family man. I work for my family. This is the third time we've had motorbikes stolen. I don't think my kids will ever have a motorbike again if that's what's inviting people into our life. To steal and take from my kids is not worth it. He said the incident had harmed his family too. If I'm released from here tomorrow on bail or whatever, I'll go straight to the real estate agent, put the for sale sign up because our life here is finished, he said. We came here for a good future. We didn't come here for this. We didn't come here to have motorbikes stolen, padlocks broken. There is nothing unlawful about trying to get your gear back. Seamus Raggedy, defence lawyer. The man's lawyer, Seamus Raggedy, said he wasn't doing anything unlawful by driving on the dirt track in the reserve or by chasing the motorcycle. There is nothing unlawful about trying to get your gear back. He said the prosecution overstated the powerless conditions of the dirt track but conceded his client was too close, which is why he had pleaded guilty to dangerous driving occasioning death, the less serious alternative charge at the earliest opportunity. If this had have been the flattest, most perfect piece of bitumen, the perfect driving service, it would still have been too close because it was too close to react, he said. Forget the track, forget the speed, which was not excessive. The issue here is the proximity. Davidson argued that in all the circumstances, given the speed they were travelling at, the surface of the track, the close proximity and the difference in size and power between the 4WD and the motorcycle, the man's driving was criminally neg negligent. That would be the highest possible level of negligence, Chief Justice Wayne Martin explained to the jury. 
conduct that shows such a disregard for the life and safety of others as to amount to a crime against the state. Sending out the jury to deliver its verdict at 12.37pm on Thursday, Martin said that in order to find the man guilty of manslaughter, they had to find he had been criminally negligent. They did not. In the hour between the jury being sent to deliberate over tea and sandwiches and the Chief Justice returning to court to answer their first question, glass safety barriers had been placed between the public gallery and the courtroom proper. Asked why the extra security was necessary, a guard said, the nature of the public gallery. The gallery erupted at the verdict, but not with violence. Elijah's mother, Petrina James, cried in anguish before leaving the court. Others called the man in the dock a murderer, with one saying, you are going to get raped in jail. Outside the Kaguli courthouse, where the trial had been live-streamed for family and friends unable to make the 600-kilometre journey to Perth, a priest began marching along Hannon Street. They had never really trusted that the colonial justice system, which locked up their children in Western Australia at a rate 53 times that of non-Indigenous children, would give them justice. Elijah, relative, um, killed herself at the site of 14-year-old's death in Kalgoorlie. An Aboriginal man involved in the riot outside the Kalgoorlie courthouse last year was last month sentenced to 12 months jail with parole for being involved in a riotous assembly. If he does not get parole, there is a possibility he could be released after the man who killed Elijah. The decision to charge Elijah's, Elijah's killer with manslaughter, not murder, was viewed as a failure of police despite there being no apparent evidence of murderous intent. Swarms of officers in high-vis jackets outside the Perth and Kogoolie courthouses did not shift the perception the police were not on the extended family's side. Handing down the dangerous driving sentence on Friday, Martin said the man was of previously good character, though he added the people of previously good character could do terrible things. He said he would not be affected or influenced by protesting or riots or, as he put it, the ill-informed lawlessness of an unidentified group. Elijah's closest family members who did not take part in the last year's riot sat quietly as the judge laid out the technical reasons why the crime that killed Elijah was on the medium to lower end of the scale and why the accused man was owed a 25% discount off the length of his sentence for pleading guilty to dangerous driving causing death, despite it not being the offence with which he was charged at the earliest opportunity. Afterwards, they walked away arm in arm. Others could yell. Here there was only grief. It's approximately 4.20 and you were just listening to an article from the Guardian, Guardian sorry, <laughs> about um, Elijah who, who was less than a year ago, as I said, a um, 14-year-old Aboriginal boy. He was stalked, he was run down and killed in a clearly race-based hate crime. And, you know, this doesn't this kind of remind us a bit of TJ Hickey? Yeah, true, yeah. Even though it wasn't police, um, it's it's just an interesting pattern, isn't it? Mm. And I think uh, listeners may want to get a cup of tea now. Probably sick of hearing my voice, <laughs> but um, you'll be hearing a couple more articles very soon. That was just a bit of a joke to try and um, light humour, to try and um, lighten up a little bit. But how can we lighten up something like this? And you're with 3CR's 855 AM Doing Time Show. I'm Peter and Rissa's in the studio. That was just um, Stomping Ground by the Rompy Band. Rissa's got some articles to um, um, talk, about, talk about. Yep. 
Yeah, the rumpy band, that really brings back memories for me. I used to love going down to the old Greek theatre uh, in the 1990s, I believe, 1980s. Anyway, yeah, and we saw the rumpy band live there. The next article is Crossing Over to America. And this was this was a, this is a political prisoner that I have always been very very interested in, and again, it's about race. And this is titled "Sentenced to Death at Age 17," and it's about Gary Tyler. And this I actually got this article from the Break the Chains list, which is a um, a prison prisoner support discussion list that I'm on, and. It's if you want to find it, I, I'm, I will I will say that have a look at www.freedomarchives, which is an American website. Gary Tyler is building a new life in Venice. Story by Shirley Hawkins, and it was posted on June the twenty eighth, two thousand and seventeen. Gary Tyler is finally at peace. The tranquil craftsman homes and lush tree lined streets of Pasadena are a far cry from the grim grey walls of the Louisiana State Prison, infamously known as Angola, the worst and bloodiest prison in the nation. Tyler, 58, was incarcerated there for 41 and a half years for a crime he did not commit, arriving on death row before his 18th birthday. I feel free here, says the soft-spoken Tyler, who now lives in a small picturesque guest house where he frequently hosts local doctors, lawyers and activists, several of his long-time supporters. I can wake up in the morning and hear the birds chirping, smell the fresh air and feel the fresh breeze, he says. I enjoy the simple things, walking, talking to people, reading newspapers, learning how to drive and the fact that I can go anywhere without needing anyone's permission. Despite having so much taken from him, Tyler spends much of his time giving back. Several times a week, Tyler rides the expo line on the way to his job as an outreach and engagement support worker at Safe Place for Youth in Venice, where he helps homeless youth get off the streets. So obviously that's not Venice in Italy, that's in America. (laughs) I see the potential in the kids who come from dysfunctional backgrounds. Even though they might be runaways, homeless or doing drugs, I tell them they are salvageable and they still have potential, Tyler says of his work. I tell them to take advantage of all the opportunities that life affords them. A child sentenced to death. Tyler's nightmare began at age 16 when he was charged with murder, hastily convicted and at 17 became the youngest inmate in American history to be incarcerated on death row. This was 1974 when public schools across America were still undergoing desegregation. Even though the US Supreme Court had decided Brown v. Board of Education 20 years earlier, racial tensions flared at Deestran High School in St. Charles Parish, L.A., Tyler was sitting on a bus with other African-American students when a crowd of about 200 white students began yelling racial slurs and throwing rocks and bottles at them. A gunshot rang out above the clamour and the bullet struck 13-year-old Timothy Webber, a white classmate who later died at the local hospital. During the turmoil, Tyler witnessed his cousin being harassed by sheriff's deputies and spoke up in his defence. They subsequently arrested Tyler and initially charged him with disturbing the peace and interfering with an officer's duties. I was known for being outspoken, says Tyler. Investigators searched the bus for several hours but did not find a weapon, then transported the students to the substation to search it once again. This time they reported finding a gun, a government-issue 45 caliber Colt automatic. Police would produce the gun as evidence at Tyler's trial. 
Later, it was discovered that the weapon was identified as having been stolen from the sheriff's firing range in Jefferson Parish, 10 miles away. The gun later disappeared from the evidence room. Inside the sheriff's stub station, police cursed at Tyler and threatened him. They kept asking me questions about what happened on the bus, Tyler remembers. When I said I didn't know anything, six or seven police officers brutally beat me for two or three hours in the booking room at the substation. Tyler's mother arrived hoping to take her son home and was horrified when she heard his muffled screams. He was tried by an all-white jury and sentenced to death by electric chair. I told them I was innocent but no one listened, says Tyler, his voice tinged by sadness at the memory of it. A test of survival. Tyler still recalls the sense of fear he felt as a steel gate on his prison cell clanged shut. When the prison gate shut behind me, I felt as if I was shut off from the rest of the world, he says. You knew you would not exit those gates once they were closed. While languishing on death row for the next two years, Tyler wrote letters pleading for help and support from every media outlet he could think of, and eventually his case became national news. In 1976, the US Supreme Court ruled that Louisiana's mandatory death penalty was unconstitutional and Tyler's sentence was reduced to life in prison. Tyler describes day-to-day life in Angola as a test of sheer survival. Angola was the bloodiest, most infamous prison in the nation, he says. It was a place of turmoil where prisoners were killing each other and committing suicide. I saw horrible things, inmates being set on fire or stabbed with homemade spears. I saw inmates who were doused with acid by other inmates. Some prisoners even got beaten to death by guards. But Tyler did not have to face this without help. A group of inmates formed a bond to protect the vulnerable, frightened teen. They saw a little kid who was all all alone, Tyler recalls. Many of them were uncles and fathers and they stepped up as responsible men to make sure that nothing happened to me. Tyler went on to become a model prisoner, obtaining his G.E.D., studying graphic arts and printing, and even attending paralegal school. He mentored other inmates and spent 17 years as a volunteer in the prison's hospice care facility. But it was an invitation to join Angola's drama club that radically changed his life. For the next 20 years, Tyler headed that club, which led to him directing the passion play The Life of Jesus Christ. Impressed with the production, directors Jonathan Stack and Nicholas Cuella filmed a documentary about the project titled Cast the First Stone. Troubling from the start, Tyler's case, which was widely publicised off and on for four decades, continued to gather a groundswell of support from athletes, left-wing activists and celebrities of the times, such as the British reggae band UB40 and the Neville Brothers. Rallies eventually sprung up across the country and abroad to protest Tyler's wrongful incarceration. I received cards and letters on a daily basis from people from all over the world, recalls Tyler. They told me to keep holding on and to continue to be strong. On the first appeal of Tyler's conviction in 1981, a federal appeals court found that Tyler had been denied a fundamentally fair trial but refused to order a new one for him. And despite the Louisiana Board of Pardons recommending three times that Tyler be released due to his positive work in prison, several Louisiana governors refused to act on his case. When the board recommended a pardon for Tyler in 1989, then-Republican Governor Charles Buddy Rima denied Tyler a pardon not once but twice. Ramia was running for election against Ku Klux Klansman David Duke and refused to consider Tyler's case in a racially charged election, avoiding the risk of political blowback by white voters. In a news release, Ramirez said that since I didn't have my G.E.D. yet, I wouldn't be able to make it in society, Tyler says. 
After I obtained my GED, Ramirez still denied me a pardon. All this time in faraway Los Angeles, Tyler had an advocate in Bob, Bob Zack, a member of the progressive media collective known as Peace Press, which operated from 1967 to 1987. Zack's dedication to Tyler's case outlived Peace Press, and it was Zack who later found Tyler his home in Pasadena and a job in Venice. They would not let Gary out, he says. When Governor Catholic Blanco was leaving office in 2008, we appealed to her, but she ultimately ignored his case. Undeterred, a battery of impassioned attorneys, Mary Howell, Majita Sneed, George Kendall, Pamela Bay, Corinne Irish and Sam Dalton, among others, worked for decades to extinate Tyler. The case itself was a clear miscarriage of justice, says Howe, who worked on Tyler's case from 1977 to his release. The Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that Gary was denied the presumption of innocence and had fundamentally unfair trial, yet refused to give him a new trial. The case was permeated with racial issues and deeply troubling from the beginning. And finally, freedom. In all, Tyler endured more than four decades of incarceration before the St. Charles Parish District Attorney's Office finally agreed to overturn Tyler's life sentence last year. Tyler agreed to enter a guilty plea for manslaughter, which carries a maximum sentence of 21 years. Because Tyler had already served more than twice that sentence, authorities quietly released him from Angola on April 29, 2016. Angola prison warden Daryl Vanui reportedly wept while escorting Tyler to the prison gates. He told me that we had grown up in prison together and considered me a real friend, Tyler recalls. He said, enjoy your life, Gary. Zach also speaks highly of his friend. I have no doubt that Gary will be a positive force and resource in the community, he says. He is one of the kindest, most polite, most engaging people I've ever met. For his tight part, Tyler is simply taking life one day at a time. He's still figuring out how to use all the features on his smartphone, a complicated and challenging device he had no exposure to in prison, but he's okay with that. Every day I wake up, I feel blessed that I've been given the opportunity for, to finally live a life of freedom, he says. Gary Taylor and Bob, um, yeah, it's just advertising an event and it's probably already been, so I won't talk about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I just wanted to end, um, and this is actually not in the article, but I can't resist saying free all political prisoners. It's approximately 4.36 and we haven't played any announcements yet, Peter, so it might be good to have an announcement and then I believe you've got something to do too. Yep, okay. You gotta remember Nanox's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! And I'm just going to play a, um, this is 3CR 855 AM or www.org.au. Sorry. There's a bit of a mouthful there. Um, so we're just going to go to a, um audio about 
uh, animal liberation prisoner Walter Bond. Uh, Walter is now in solitary confinement, and Walter is placed in the SU on on um, Monday. That was a this this was dated June nineteenth, so last month. He has been investigated for an assault. He can't discuss an incident because he is being investigated. Um, he said that he could. Could, could he could be there for a few months? Um, he would like to receive letters from all of you, including please include your address and and um, jokes and funny stories are good. So he's inside. He's in the hole. His address is Walter Bond, or Walter then Bond, like you know, hmm. B O N D. The the number his prison number thirty seven. O nine six dash O one three F I C Greenville PO Box five hundred Greenville I L Illinois six, Yep Illinois six double two four six USA and I'll just put on a little um um audio about what about him. I'm your host, Will Hazlitt of the North American Animal Liberation Press Office and R9 Media. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jerry Vlasic, founder of the North American Animal Liberation Press Office, interviewing Walter Bond, the Animal Liberation Front lone wolf. So uh, when we when we uh, dropped off last time, you just started talking about uh, you know getting a message out to people, and uh, we were talking about, or you were talking about, I should say, um, this concept of intersectionality and and something that people oh, were right. uh, people were uh, sort of involved in these days. And once you pick it, once you uh, start over on that thread or pick up where you left off, if you remember, and let's uh, let's hear what you have to yeah. say about that. Yeah, not a problem. Not a problem. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get it misconstrued. I don't have a problem with intersectionality. I don't have a problem with movements working together. I just want to get the message out to animal rights activists in particular that it's okay to, to, to have your focus and your main focus, even your only focus, being animal liberation, earth liberation. I've seen a trend over uh, the last decade or two that seems a little bit distracted to me. Um, you can't do everything at one time. I mean, no one person can do everything at one time. No one group of people can do everything at one time. So when you spread yourself too thin, uh, I feel like, you know, kind of the old jack-of-all-traits, master-of-none uh, right. uh, type of thing. So, and, I, and I see that kind of more and more in certain writings. It seems to be like a push towards if you're not, you know, on, on this kind of page with everybody all at the same time. Then, um, then it's not valid, and uh, that's a scary concept to me because what it does is it takes uh, a lot of a lot of good people from a lot of uh, different movements conjoined, but uh, and, and and kind of um, what's, the, what's the way I should put it here? Uh, kind of d- dilutes uh, uh, dilutes the power of what they have. So that's 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 that would be my my main. Um, my main message to intersectionality is it's okay uh, to work together. That's wonderful to work together, uh, but it's also it's everybody's entitled to their own autonomy too as a movement. Right. In other words, uh, it, it's a lot of people, or it seems common today to uh, you know talk about other movements and and to be um, 
uh, sort of uh, so spread out all over the map that, that people actually aren't aren't uh, aren't getting the work done that needs to be done as far as helping animals in particular. Correct. That there, that, yeah, there is that, and and it also just it, it, it sets up an environment. Where if you don't if you don't follow believe or do A B C D E F G H I then then nothing then nothing counts and uh, I, I just don't see that as being realistic or necessarily um, uh, forward thinking um, as, as it seems. So. Yeah, along those same lines, there's. Um while there's been a, a reasonable number of uh, animal liberatory uh, actions, including uh, economic sabotage and, and liberations, the, they, they seem, uh, it would appear that in the, in the last uh, several, uh, at least a couple of years, that these actions have tended to be smaller in nature and, uh, and not as, uh, not as um, um, what's the word I'm grasping for, not as... Um, um, noteworthy or not serious? as uh, not as serious, in other words. Yeah. Uh, and, and while each of those actions certainly matters for the for the animals being liberated, or 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 and, and certainly doing small acts of sabotage uh, is better than doing nothing. Uh, it's it's notable in my mind that there have been very little uh, 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 loud statements made uh, as far as uh, uh, large liberations or significant economic sabotage. Uh, of course, which uh, entails greater risk uh, to the to the, uh, the the actors as well. Uh, have you have you 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 been aware of this uh, trend and and do you agree? And if so, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've been aware of this trend for many years. I've been locked up now for seven years. I haven't seen. I've, this call is from a federal prison. I haven't been out in the world since 2010, but I do follow as closely as I can through the mail uh, the direct actions and the things that are going on. But going back to when I was in the world, it was the exact same thing you were talking about, and this was something that I was personally trying to make a statement about with uh, with my campaign of arson. Um, I was trying, and also with my moniker of Lone Wolf, I was trying to uh, sh show that show people that you know, how about big actions with little words instead of you know little actions with uh, five or six page diatribes. A lot of the times, what ends up happening with these things is we're talking to ourselves. You know what I mean? The, the mainstream, uh, the, even the language, a lot of the times is not going to be understood by anybody the context not going to be understood by anybody outside of uh, a small group of a small movement um, so I, I think that it's I mean I personally feel my personal opinion is that it's it's if it's possible or if it's at all possible um, you should you know do do what do 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 uh, do the most you can uh, in the way of direct action um, because on the other end, what's happening to animals is so severe and extreme that you know it's it's it, there needs to be a counterbalance to what's going on in animal abuse, slaughterhouses, industries, any animal any animal husbandry or any you know uh, uh, any different facet of animal abuse we want to go into. I guess another good thing to note about that is that 
people need to understand, once you take on a moniker, once you start sending communiques, it doesn't matter if you broke a window or if you destroyed uh, a whole city block. You're going to be considered a terrorist. They're going to be trying to link these things together. And if they ever do catch up with you, uh, that broken window is going to be a, a terrorism charge. It's going to be prison. And I'm not trying to scare people with that, but try to get people to understand that what, what, what could be a prank to a kid, throwing a, throwing a rock through a McDonald's window, uh, and, and getting a six months probation uh, is going to turn into um, a couple years of prison, if, if not more, uh, it, you know, when, uh, when the um, fat hits the fire, so to speak. So I think it's important for people to understand that it's not a joke, and once you, once you take it to that level, that uh, your opposition's not looking at you like just a kid throwing a brick through a window. Right, and that said, uh, in, the, in the thousands of uh, liberatory acts that have been uh, committed over the uh, last several uh, decades on behalf of animals, uh, very, very few people have ever been uh, uh, apprehended, uh, charged, and, and much less sent to prison. So it's actually, uh, if, you, if you add up the uh, risk-benefit ratio, the, uh, the the ratio is pretty heavy in favor of animals. In other words, uh, actions are, are perfectly uh, it's perfectly logical to expect to commit a, uh, a wide range of, of ongoing uh, direct actions and uh, heavily in favor of helping animals without uh, a big expectation of uh, spending serious time behind bars, with certain notable exceptions, of course. Uh, the, no, other, no, the, and the other thing I just wanted to say before I forget is that the that larger, more uh, notable actions that do catch the, um, the the attention of the media and which allows press officers like myself and, and William to do interviews and, and to be uh, heard uh, more widely. Not only are they heard, uh, not only is the animal liberation message, uh, I think, distributed more widely among among the general public, but also more animal rights people and more animal activists hear the message and perhaps are more likely to act. And that's uh, one of the missions that we see uh, for the press office is to uh, encourage and um, and um, and, and notify people of of what actions can be taken uh, on behalf of animals. Right, right. And, and I was, and yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from, and I and I agree. The thing is, is I, when I say you know I'm not trying to uh, denigrate little actions or what's seen as small. Everything counts. It all counts. Right. I mean, whether you're whether you're helping one animal, whether you rescue if you rescue one animal, that's the whole world to that one being. So it, there's there is no action that doesn't count. Um, but and this is something that I've always uh it's just a, it's just it's just part of my habit. I always put responsibility on the on the on the on the actors themselves. Meaning um we're the ones who care. We're the ones that are trying to to win the day for animals. So we need to expect more out of ourselves and really not get complacent or happy with any type of successes until we've won. And uh and this is something I I do with myself is just a matter of policy. People ask me, how can I, you know, handle prison? How my bravery, hero? I'm none of those things. I just expect more of myself than I do of other people. It's a general policy. And I think that that should extend into our movement. Um, you know, the thing is, is it seems like a lot of people, and it's great. We've made a great, a lot of great progress. I mean, veganism, animal rights have come so far in the last two decades that it's, it's amazing to me how much into the stream of consciousness these things are becoming, even though it's, it's, it's not as fast as, as, as we would like to see it. Uh, that being said, uh, I think that it's very important for people to, I think it's very important for people to, um, 
how can I put it here? Um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. I got a million and one things going on around me here on the phone. But um, I think that it's important for people just to, to, to put the responsibility firmly on themselves. Um, we all seem to, that's what I was going to say, we all seem to be waiting around for some, like, we, we get this idea in our head that we're going to put out propaganda, we're going to put out the right graphics, we're going we're gonna to publish the right thing, and then, like, some magic army of, of liberators is going to occur. And that's not going to happen. The magic liber, uh, army of liberators is you. It's me. It's, 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 it's the person himself or herself who cares. You know what I mean? Trying to get somebody else to care and then take your place uh, as a warrior on the front lines for animals, uh, it doesn't work that way. Well said. And I, you know, I, I uh, it, at times I, uh, I'm discouraged by the number of people that are um, willing to put themselves out there and do the things that need to be done. If considering the, as you mentioned, the extremity of the situation, it, it seems the the uh, the situation seems so extreme, and yet there seems to be so few people that are actually. Um, uh, out there and willing to really push themselves beyond uh, beyond what uh, others around them are doing. Um, it's interesting. I, I had the chance to have uh, dinner with Bill Ayers the other night, a, a former member of the Weather Underground, and, and he talked about you know their bombing campaign uh, during uh, opposing the Vietnam War in the 1970s. And, um, you know, it's, it's just amazing what the kind of things that have gone on in the past and, and, um, and how little seems to be going on today, considering that the, the, uh, situation, uh, is perhaps as extreme, if not more extreme, uh, than it, than it was back, uh, back in the 60s and 70s. You know, and, and to, uh, right, and not to be discouraging, I'll, I'll give, I'll give a good point of, uh, positivity here in a minute, but, but you're, I, I see where you're going with that, and it's, it's something that I've noted a long time ago. We, uh, we're doing less than we were, it seems like, in a lot of ways, we're doing less than we were, say, 50 or 60 years ago. Um, this call is from a federal prison. During the Vietnam era, yet this, the, the severity of, of um, what you know, if we want to get intersectional again, if we, if we, the, the severity of all these uh, different movements uh, is not in a, in, a, in a better situation than it was. It's, I mean, America is now openly fascist with our Trump dictator, and um, and, and, the, and the thing I, the thing that I, I again find frustrating is I see the same kind of reenactments. It's like a play. It's like a. Uh, it's like a. Um, outlet you know what i mean we go through the motions it's a ritual of of protest and the whole thing is is so that we can uh so that we can vent our frustrations and then nothing happens except it gets worse you know what i mean so well that beat means we're under two minutes to go on this call but so i'll end it with this at the end of the day to keep yourself positive and to keep yourself forward thinking you need to have something inside you that 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 uh that dictates um that dictates what, what's going to keep you going forward. And for me, that has always been, you know, the, the slaughterhouses, slaughterhouses that I worked in and the animals that I saw there. And, and whether I can win this war for animals or whether we can win this war for animals or whether we'll ever win this war for animals is secondary to me to the fact that I will always fight for it because it's worth fighting for. You know, it's like Screaming Wolf said, every single victory we make for animals, every single battle is a war won. That should keep you going. Don't look at, you know... If we can, if we're winning the war, every battle is a win. Well put, comrade. And that was an interview with Walter Bond. Um, yeah, so you've got a website, Peter. We haven't got much time left. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the website is uh, support Walter 
Walter.org. <laughs> and it's approximately 4.54, is that right? Yeah. And we're nearing the end of our show. Good on you, Peter. Um, fantastic interview. And as you can you can hear, there was a beep, 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 beep. That's the censorship beep, beep, because um, obviously he was, he was in prison, another political prisoner, and they're often censored. Just to um, say goodbye, before we say goodbye, rock up to the Trades Hall event tonight at 6.30 if you're in the area. And we interviewed Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective last week. How can we break the the bipartisan support for offshore processing? Um, Hosted by Refugee Action Collective Victoria. It's tonight at 6.30pm to 8.30pm, Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Melbourne. And um, there's a number of speakers there from the ACTU and Michelle O'Neill, State Secretary, and you've also got Aaron, um, who's a Tamil, refu- Tamil sorry, refugee and FSU organiser. And you've got Lucy Honan. Um, yeah, so rock up to that. And so we'll see you next Monday, every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And also, it's not too late to donate. Um, yeah. If people haven't played their pledges, please, please do so. Um, and we'll go from there for Radiothon. All right. Um- See everyone, we'll just go out with Blackfellow, Whitefellow. From the Rumpy Band, bye. Bye.